0: Welcome to another episode of Real Estate Investing News for accredited investors. Check out the video webinar version of this episode on our YouTube channel or visit simplepassivecashflow.com slash investor letter and check out our sister podcast by searching for the Simple Passive Cashflow podcast on your favorite podcast player.
1: Hey, what's up folks? We are live. This is the November 2021 monthly market update where I quickly go over what is going on in some of the news out there impacting investors, mostly real estate investors. Uh, if you guys want to get a hold of my new book coming out next month, uh, go to simplepassthecashflow.com slash book and shoot me an email if you guys are able to help. need some folks to help me out with the launch. Give me a, a review. I'll um, buy your, your book. We also have the the audio version there at com slash book. So help out the cause. Get the good word out. We appreciate it, guys.
0: Welcome to another episode of Real Estate Investing News for accredited investors. Check out the video webinar version of this episode on our YouTube channel or visit com slash investor letter and check out our sister podcast by searching for the Simple Passive Cash Flow podcast on your favorite podcast player.
1: Get started. If you guys haven't uh, met me before, my name is Lane Kawoka. I'm currently, 6,500 rental units. So you're going to update this slide and I used to be an engineer. And I show you guys how to escape the rat race investing in alternative investments and stop doing stuff like buying a house to live in, paying off your debt, instead buying real assets that produce cash flow and grow for you. If you guys haven't yet, check out the free podcast, Simple Passive Cash Flow, Passive Real Estate Investing, found on all the platforms. And if you're tuning in on the YouTube version of this, or the podcast version, you want to see the the slides that we have, check out the YouTube channel and also uh, check out the podcast version. But before we get going, if you guys have any comments or anything, please type it into the comment box below. We'll try and answer it if it uh, comes up. So the first thing here, you know, what I see a lot of people doing and what I try and do as part of this full passive cash flow, is to get people from being victims of the consequences of their own actions, just little picture of this dog who got stuck under a picnic table and it restricted his movement because he went all over and he's got the leash tangled under all the legs of the table. And again, those things are buying a house to live in. I think if you're in credit card debt, you need a way to force savings account for yourself. Yeah, buy a house because it's a forced piggy bank. But for most of you guys listening, you guys have good financial skills. You guys are the max out your 401k crowd, push your money into investments and not necessarily a house to live in. I still rent today. Next thing is investing in your 401k and getting that company match, thinking that's all cool. And maybe the company match is okay. I guess it's free money. You're investing in, in my opinion, garbage retail investments. Turbo tax. You guys are used to turbo tax. You got to get with it. Spend some money other than free and get some deductions in there. But if you don't have any real estate, go do turbo tax because you're not going to get any deductions in that thing anyway. And then doing a Roth IRA or any kind of IRA, just don't really see the point to it if you're investing in real estate, because real estate gives you passive losses, and that's what you can use to effectively shelter your passive income. And why are we doing this? Why are we going into good assets? Well, inflation is upon us, if you guys haven't seen. Here, we're looking at a little picture of, you guys have seen how much a pound of coffee costs in Walmart, and you know, it's not six seventy nine anymore. If you look again, it's eight forty nine. The cost of inflation is around us. So here we go. Let's get into some of the the headlines here. WalletHub released a couple reports of some of the safest cities in America, and those are Columbia, Maryland, South Burlington, New Hampshire, Yonkers, New York, Madison, Wisconsin, Portland, Maine, Warwick, Rhode Island, Raleigh, North Carolina, Burlington, I think that's Vermont, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Now, some of the unsafe cities in America, Lubbock, Texas, South St. Petersburg, Florida, Anchorage, Alaska, Birmingham, Alabama, Benton Rouge, Memphis, Tennessee, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, San Bernardino, California, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Missouri. Some of the people who aren't sophisticated investors might say, well, yeah, I don't want to invest in these least safe cities, but I, I had four rentals in Birmingham. A lot of the investors still go there for rental properties. I have a couple apartments in Oklahoma City. I invest in the top 10 worst safest cities in America. And I think it all comes with part of the territory of investing in the right sub-markets, even in these bad, unsafe areas. You can't just invest off generalities or these stupid top 10 lists. That said, if you're looking for the safest cities in America, you probably ain't going to cash flow there. and It's probably not going to be a good investment. Partly, I bring these types of figures up to call out the BS, right? Safest states in America, Vermont, Maine, New Hampshire, Minnesota, Utah, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Maryland, Washington. Now, you're not investing in a particular state. You're investing in a MSA, a city, and if you dive down even deeper into the certain MSA or submarket within the market. So for example, like Seattle has maybe a couple dozen submarkets within the greater Seattle area. And even within one of those submarkets, you might have a good side or a bad side or a good block, bad block. What we tell investors is get away from these stupid top 10 lists and really start to dive in and just know that some of these safe estates, a lot of these just won't cash flow. They're not going to be good investments. Sure, they're a nice place to live in and maybe it has a good school district or two, but is it going to be make good investment? And that is where you separate the real investors from those people who just like to collect houses in random areas of the country because they feel like it is safe for them. Some of the least safest states in in America, Tennessee, Missouri, Florida, Alabama, Montana, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Texas, Mississippi, Louisiana. If you went off this list, you wouldn't invest in Texas, Alabama, Florida. I'd say three of the top eight states to invest in, quite frankly. So bad data. Michael says he's from St. Louis. It's only bad in certain areas. So St. Louis and Kansas City, I don't know what it is about those towns, but man, it isn't really like block by block in those certain areas. And that's just go to show you even in the right submarket, you have to go look block by block. Thanks for the comments, folks. Feel free to drop more comments in. And also if you guys are checking this out on replay, drop the comments below and I might get to it if I happen to be playing around on social media, which I try not to. I think it just means it's a waste of time. This next slide is from Arbor. Arbor is one of the, uh, the few direct Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac lenders that we'll work with to get these large direct Fannie Freddie loans for apartments. A lot of good data and, and newsletters they come up with. So this is an article on affordability and some of the highlights here. The pandemic's economic effects combined with this year's surging rent prices have strained low-income renters placing housing affordability back in the spotlight. So as we know, the, the pandemic impacted a lot of the low-end, the Class C type of stuff. The Class A stuff, in a traditional recession, the Class A people lose their jobs and move to the Bs and the Bs and to the Cs. But in this particular COVID-19 pandemic slash recession, the A class were pretty much unimpacted other than paying for a Grubhub and not having to go to their college sports games or professional sports games and big nice vacations. But other than that, they're pretty good. Some of our Class A apartments, they ran into a, a rough month there when a lot of people were realized that interest rates were low and they bought houses. Right? And this is why it's nice to invest in stuff that your tenants aren't exactly economically mobile. Now, that could be insensitive, but hey, when you're an investor, you don't want too much uh, turnover amongst your tenants. Next point here, reduced business income due to the pandemic and related downturn may decrease the value of tax credits and require affordable developers to seek alternative financing sources. So there's a lot of developers out there that will develop these properties for the lower income, or it might have, you know, say 20% of the units designated to be 20% under the market. I think it's a good idea. It's the government's way of ensuring that you have ample supply of lower income. Because even in a good area, someone's got to take out the trash or do those types of jobs. So it'd be cool if they live close to where it's at. I think it, this is a hell of a lot better idea than making a bunch of projects where a bunch of poor people are living. There's just a lot of unsafe conditions and high crime areas where I think that the they call this the Lurk, different acronyms, L-I-H-T-C is another program, but developers will take advantage of these government incentives to build and you know get, either get credits or great loans. But the, the give back is they need to have these rent restrictions on a certain amount of units. We've got a couple of apartments that have these exact same thing where 20% of the units are designated lower. The, the share of the LIHTC mortgages utilizing the four percent tax credit remained elevated at 40 percent through the second quarter of 2021, reflecting the continued attractiveness of rehabbing versus ground-up development. The Housing Choice Voucher Program, another major affordable housing initiative, is set to be expanded in the proposal of 2022 federal budget by 5.3 billion, a 13.3 increase from the fiscal year 2021. Now 3.5 of several trillion. Still pennies amongst the big stimulus package. So, it sounds like a lot of money, but it's a drop in the bucket, in my opinion. Now, this article is a doozy here. We're going to try and break this down. This is from the Joint Center of Housing Studies of Harvard University. And if you guys are ever looking to sound really cool and smart in front of your coworkers, friends about investing in rental properties, this is a great source to uh, read about. So, what this article is. And I'm going to summarize from a real high level here, just so you guys have the major takeaways. This is discussing kind of the whole debate, whether you should have zoning restrictions on certain areas of your market, of your MSA or submarkets. Now, if you guys have been paying attention to the last investor letters, the last one we had, I think it was one month or two months ago, you guys can access the old versions of this monthly newsletter at simple investorletter slash investor letter. But if you recall, California, gotta love California, probably the most progressive state in the union, they had a restriction on certain single family home zoned areas. And due to some of the need for more housing due to high costs, they are starting to break up those traditionally single family home zoning and allow for some more densities and duplexes, triplexes, or or smaller apartments in those. And a lot of affluent people get upset at this type of stuff because it's not in my neighborhood, right? This is for the rich folks. Leave us alone. I don't know why I say it in that accent, but it's the, the battle between the haves and have-nots once again. And this has been going on since the beginning of time in the 19th century in America, cities Started to instit- institute and the builders of homes were lightly regulated. In the early 20th century, progressive reform included the practice of land zoning from Germany in order to provide working class families with low density housing on the urban outskirts. If you guys are history majors or you love geeking out on this stuff, you guys can look at the 1917 Buchanan versus Worley Supreme Court dis- decision, which prohibited zoning by race. And in 1926, the courts gave it blessing to zoning that segregated land uses and building types in Euclid versus Amler. The court endorsed single-family homes on the grounds that they excluded parasite apartment buildings that blighted neighborhoods and lower property values. You know, I, I guess that's a better term to call those types of the projects, right? Where they just, hey, let's just stuff all the poor people into these really dense populated areas. And I think this is what you think of when you think of the slums of India. I think that's what they do. Generally, the idea and the movement today, at least with the current administration is to break that up, bring spread apart people into different areas, which means you know, the poor people will be amongst some more middle class people. And then also the high ends will be intermingled with the middle class people. Single family home at this greatest impact in the suburban boom took place decades after the World War Two And. This is where the FHA, the Federal Housing Administration, and the Veterans Administration got together and developed these areas called greenfields, such as old farms, which generally took the form of single family houses on individual lots. As they, you know, a lot of the guys who came back from war, they wanted to start a life. And this is where the overwhelming choice to Americans moving to the suburbs. Developments catered to the states, carefully calibrating the size of lots and price point for these different income levels with the encouragement and approval by FHA, such developers, such as William Levitt, explicitly barred black Americans. And in some cases Jews from buying into these subdivisions. And that was where we think of it as duh, that's not right. But not too long ago, stuff like that, that Supreme court case, Jones versus mayor prohibited discrimination in real estate transactions. Fun fact. Just a little while ago, I saw, I I used to have a lot of properties in Birmingham, but Birmingham or the state of Alabama just got rid of a law that said that you could not teach yoga in public schools because they thought that it was a little hokey pokey or kind of mix of churches type of stuff. Strange, right? This country is so diverse. So amazing. Great to live here. Uh, So no matter what size of home and yard they possess, suburban communities felt like they had a stake in maintaining the social or Physical characteristics of their neighborhood to ensure that new development would serve only high-income brackets. Suburbs commonly imposed minimum, large minimum house lot sizes, often up to three acres, but sometimes up to ten. Over time, many came to see any new development as a threat to their quality of life. The not in not in my neighborhood. When I was an industrial engineer, we would study things like they would design like bridges on not really highways but major. Thoroughfares to eliminate buses coming through because buses were. So it was one of those like social engineering type of things to keep the poor people out. Local officials responded by making it more difficult for home builders to obtain construction permits from the 1970s onwards. They implemented measures that impede or block new construction in the name of saving nature, a process that the late Bernard Ferdin, a longtime professor at MIT, described as the environmental protection hustle. Suburban cities and towns became imposing outright limits and moratoria on new construction to slow or discourage development. In addition, building development, official city engineers, the fire marshals each impose increasingly demand requirements on new residential development. In the twenty first century, you know large m- municipalities, metropolitans continue to impose non-zoning anti-growth measures. These included not only environmental building codes, which was their sly way of limiting growth, but also requirements for project approval from two or more government entities extracting fees for developers and formal groups Such restriction constrained development and thus con- contributed to the rise in housing prices. Like, I used to be a city engineer and city controls the permits. They can designate who builds and who doesn't, and they can guide the growth of a city and who moves in and what kind of clientele that's they serve. It's the, so this, if you guys are living in fairy tale land where you believe that you, anybody can live wherever they want, you, you're mainly mistaken. But there's been a movement to increase density and remove barriers to housing developments. Sometimes called "Yes in My Backyard," has brought about the re- single family zoning bans, as well as new rules to apply excessively dwelling units in single-family houses in states and localities, most notably Oregon, California, and Connecticut. But the efforts to get rid of single-family districts have not addressed the plethora of obstacles to residential development on a scale that would affect housing prices. Many places have, have failed to increase the allowable height or size of the building to allow for more density. In Oregon, zoning reforms allow municipalities to require large lot sizes. California new laws allows local jurisdictions to impose owner occupancy restrictions on subdivided lots, leaves local zoning and design requirements in place in exempt lands that have been deemed prime farmland, wetland, or part of conservation. The new zoning rules usually allow building up to four units on a previously single-family lot, a single number that will remain likely the most development that had been done on one lot at a time by homeowners and small scale builders. Overall, this is a small process. And if you want to grow your YouTube channel and you want to scare people to clicking on your video and watching your video, so you can collect ad revenue that way, you scare the crap out of people and you tell them that the world is coming to end and the California housing bubble is going to pop. Because a handful of neighborhoods are now allowing some duplexes, triplex, or pods to be as opposed to a traditionally single-family home neighborhood. I just don't believe that really impacts things too much. That's, why do we need this? Because our country's population is growing and we need more of this value-based type of housing to house the lower middle class because the, the middle class are dying out endangered species and they're becoming the lower middle class and they need they don't they can't afford these larger single-family home lots and generally moving into multi-family apartments last point here merely eliminate single-family zoning history stress is like unlikely to increase housing stock significantly as i just meant to unleash residential development will require peeling back layers of regulations that have accrued over the decades this could mean reducing minimum lot sizes, relaxing overly stringent construction and site requirements, easing design reviews, and rolling back some environmental control, including certain provisions for wetlands and open space. The political efforts necessary to reverse such entrenched practices, however, will be formidable so that the recent laws against single-family zoning are but the first steps in a large march. So what they're saying is, yeah, sure, it, it can be open to single-family home or Duplex or quads, but good luck trying to get a permit. Moving on, so the next slide here is taken from the Yardi Matrix, a great data source. The image below is basically showing, come the January of this year, as the vaccine started to roll out. Man, rent increases have been pretty much skyrocketing. Asking rents nationwide continue to break records. Although there is some signs of deceleration, which normally the rent increases go up 2 to 3% every year, which kind of goes up with the pace of inflation. You know, I mean, I, a lot of this growth for the first part of the year till now, in my opinion, just wasn't sustainable. And it's got to cool off at some point. Um, but asking rents were up 11.4% year over year in September. Monthly rent growth was 16%, a rate of 1%, which is the lowest monthly gain since the housing market began to accelerate in March. When you say, oh my God, we're going back down. No, rent increases kind of go a lot lot more smoother in terms of increase and decrease. The fact that it went up 11.4% year over year, it's just phenomenal. That's usually what the top market in the nation, like the best out of the top 100, 150 markets did. And that's what the average is across the country. Just phenomenal. Sunbelt tech hubs are still leading the nation in rent growth as markets in the southeast and the southwest benefit from rapid domestic migration and job growth. The migration story has been playing out for a number of years, but accelerated quickly during the pandemic. Yeah, this is why I used to have an apartment in Iowa, or like, some people would invest in Kansas City, Indianapolis. I just don't really like those types of areas. Population growth might be, I mean, it might be going up. I think of it as more stagnant. At the end of the day, the rents are not really increasing too much as it is in the Sunbelt states, your Arizona, your Texas, your Alabama, your Georgia, your Florida, your Carolina. Single-family built-to-rent continued to grow at even faster pace than multifamily. The nation rents are up 14.3% year of year. Occupancy keeps rising up 1.2% year over year. And as Andrew comments, is the built-to-rent the next phase in your development or an offshoot? So the build to rent to me is, I just don't, the big institutions are getting into the space because we're becoming more and more of a nation of renters. But I just feel there might be a good exit. It's, what is hard to do is if you buy up 50 or you develop 50 houses, the loans don't allow you to piece off, sell a onesie, twosie property here, there. So it makes your exit strategy pretty much impossible with, with that. I've looked into what with. The, why do we like apartments? So we have one freaking roof, and a lot of times one major chiller or individual HVACs. Whereas in the apartments, all we got to worry about are the interior walls. We don't have to worry about all these stupid roofs or all these like backyard, all this like landscaping. There's just, there's just double amount of things that can go wrong with a single family home. Other reasons, I feel like single family home tenants are a little bit more needy. They're a little more entitled, right? They, they literally have a fort to themselves. Where apartment dwellers, they know their their role. They're renting an apartment, a box within the box, and it's just easier to keep them in line. I don't know. I never say never, but I don't know. I just see the large institutions going into it, and their property capitalized, and they can do things that the, the mom and pa investors can do, and they can do things that the private equity guys, folks like us, can't do. No, we don't build. We don't build little houses. I, and I think that's another thing, right? A lot of this is predicated on relationships and who do you have in your Rolodex. There's a lot of house builders out there. It's just, it's a different type, type of business. But good question. Build for, so John Burns reports of the build for rent story, the tenant preferences. So what's mattering more is spending more money on some pet-friendly home designs. So and what matters less is don't spend on pet walking pet services such as dog walk, walking. So for us, we like pets if it's in like a B plus or especially A, because to me, and this is, I'm just speaking in terms of generalities here. So give me a break. If somebody has a house, a dog or a cat, they're typically a little bit more stable and they're not going to move. Is what I mean. That's what's important to me as the investor. Whereas you get into the class C housing, Animals are more like guard animals, or if you have cats, now you're talking about the cat lady, a cat dude with 60 cats, and they can be destructive. So I think that there's a different, there's a paradigm differential between the lower class and the higher class rentals. That said, pets do cause damage. So it's important to collect more rent. typically anywhere, there's a pet fee, cleaning fee, and then maybe a bump in rents, maybe about 10% plus every month for those pets. Things that other people are looking for are the high quality finishes, such as a fabulous kitchen. And this is just people have been in, locked up in their houses for two years. And a lot of people are working from home. So it makes sense to spend a little bit more money than the typical one third that your budget kid budgeted supposedly on your housing. Some things that they're skipping out on is spending less of premium flooring and smart tech. So the premium flooring, the real wood. I don't know why people want those. I like the luxury vial vinyl it looks super cool it looks sometimes even better than the hardwood and it's indestructible I and mean, when you get tired of it and if it happens to break you can just fix it i think that's a game changer uh, amenities so that people want more relax ra- relaxation areas and spend less on coordinating social activities so uh, if you guys check out my last podcast on apartmentlife.org we still feel like the social aspect is really the the added value for residents to increase that community aspect of it. So we still like to do things to increase the community aspect, or you know, that's, that's I'll thing, why people pay more or stay, they don't move out because they have a community of friends, the home office, spending on a full office or den for single family renters with children, the, having that nook is something that we've been designing into our new uh, development for that, that dedicated I work from home person, but what they're saying is a lot of people opt for the extra bedroom for that. People aren't spending their money on not spending money on a full office for single and couple, single family renters. Merchandise a bedroom for flexibility. The National Association of Realtors had an article about renter demand shifts toward more affordable and suburban class B and C apartments. Go figure. They're citing that apartment demand has surged during the pandemic, continued to soar to a decade high level as 2021-quarter three, with a net absorption of nearly a million units since 2020-quarter two. Absorption, just so you guys don't know, absorption is new stuff coming online or vacant things being filled up with people or absorbed. Nearly quarter of a million units in the past 12 months. As of 2023, the vacancy rate has fallen to a decade low of 4.5% and the asking rent has soared to a historical high of 10.5%. So whenever you're looking at the demand or the hotness of the market, we look at a lot is not only is where the asking rents are going, and obviously it's been on a tear for the, since the beginning part of the year, but what is that? the vacancy rates to can also be an early indicator of or a symptom of a better market or a worse market in the future. So as vacancy starts to creep up, that's how you know that there's too much inventory coming online. In and I think at that most cases, in my opinion, you're gonna see that the rents lay, the vacancy dips. You guys are more graphical people. We have a lot of engineers, so the graph at the top. This coming from the highest 12-month net absorption, declining vacancy rate and rapid rent growth as of October 13, 2021. So the top growth, top graph is the absorption of units. As you've seen, as of the last 2020 quarter three, absorption has gone uh, way, way, almost two to three times what it's normally been. Vacancy rates have also come down. Typically we're hovering anywhere from six to 10% vacancies. That seems to be the healthy amount of vacancy across the board. But now the lows low 4.6%, which is indicative of a good, hot, healthy market. Asking rent year-over-year year growth, obviously that has skyrocketed 11.4% since last year. I will just comment. So when the 2020, 2020 quarter one was the part of the pandemic, which you had, and I think my cursor is on at this point. I guess you guys can't see my cursor. At that bottom of the low, you've seen it rents got kind of frozen because what a lot of people, a lot of investors or operators were doing is just holding rents where they are. And it was seemed a little unfair with people not working to bump up their rents. So that was appropriate at that time. At the same time, vacancy remained about the high. It didn't spike through the pandemic. And that's what we all thought it would maybe. Right? We thought people were, were going to lose their jobs or not working. Turned out that The pandemic actually froze everything how it was, which is actually a good thing. Heads in beds, rents due, collect your rent checks. That was the impact of the pandemic. Now, this is a breakdown of construction of apartment units by class in 2021 quarter. And the class is designated by class A, B, and C. So A class is your luxury stuff. B-class is just still pretty nice stuff, especially if you're talking brand new, definitely not luxury stuff. Class C stuff is your lower income. And this is why, like, why is there no Class C stuff? The cost to build the dang thing just doesn't make any sense when you're building, which is why barely any supply comes online. 1.34% of new construction is Class C. What it is, it's a split between Class A and B. But there's an interesting phenomenon happening here. Yeah, it, so if you're looking at the graph, um, this is probably a graph for a lot of you guys listening on the podcast to go and check out later. In the year 2011, you had more Class A than Class B, but the spread was very thin. From 2011 to 2016, they diverged. So the Class A share of new construction greatly increased and the Class B stuff declined at the same inverse relationship relationship now here's what I'm speculating around 2016 maybe there was just too much nice stuff which is why which is typically what happens when the market gets a little bit overheated the the developers go a little bit too much ham on building the class a stuff that they can't really get the rents because there's too much class good class B slow so that's why I think you've seen this backtrack, and now you're seeing the Class A builds 56%, Class B builds 42%. They're coming together again. So one would assume that this is a good sign for investors and the market that this will this kind of this cyclical pattern will continue to happen. I don't think you're ever going to get it. It's just impo- I don't ever say impossible, but it's just it doesn't it's not going to happen where there's going to be a lot more Class B than A. It's just stupid to do that because, you to, again, to build something brand new, it just makes sense that just build it A-class. So I, one would assume that the, the cyclical pattern where it squeezes and expands will continue to happen over time. If, should there be a recession, I what I would think is the whole quantity would decline, but the percentages will remain the same. This is a graph from ALN, ALN price class averages of effective Everybody always says, what's the difference between A, B, and C, and D class? One of the big things is the age of the property. If you want to generalize, I'd say 19, maybe the year 2000 and, and newer is class A. 1990s, 1980s is more class B. 1960s, 1970s is class C. Class D is just kind of garbage that's older than 67 a year. But this is a, a graph of kind of showing what is the the effective rate rents and you can see how they line up where the class A is slightly above two thousand dollars a unit, class B is around seventeen hundred, class C is fourteen hundred, and class D is eleven 1, hundred. Of course, these are a lot higher because we're including high priced areas such as New York, California, Hawaii, Seattle. Because a lot of the class C properties that we'll buy rent average rents will be around eight hundred bucks. Usually about little less than a dollar to a dollar a square foot. If you go by this graph, we're certainly not buying Class D. Most of the California pricing is a lot higher than this. This is, again, where an investor needs to take all this all into account and understand this is just the whole United States clumped into one. As we all know, we are very diverse culture, political mindedness, and also a wide range of housing options. You got a lot of different Class A pricing. Class A in California could mean 3500 dollars $5, a month, and in Bur- in Huntsville, we're building the stuff that are rent for fourteen hundred to sixteen hundred dollars for Class A. Uh, if you guys see that little orange dot there, that is actually a percent change that of the rents that have been changing, and a lot of the increases has been happening in the A and B class types of market or types of assets. Everybody's been talking about the supply chains shortages this is why we like to go into stabilized assets because, and you know, this only kind of impact development where you aren't able to get in front of the problem where the, the shortages that in our world is 63% are the windows is that's the primary, the issue getting those windows. 17% is getting the lumber. 13% is the engineered wood products and 8% is the concrete. So it's, i don't and I don't think that this is taking into account appliances Appliances are another issue too, but this is the building material causing contractor project delays overall rental market's been skyrocketing if you're an investor being left out, oh, I feel bad for you, jump on board and ride this inflation wave for the next several years but the the top three challenges for the rental industry putting out by the multi housing news first one recruitment and retention of staff a lot of people are. If you guys have heard of the Great Resignation, I'm gonna restrain myself from telling you my real thoughts about this whole thing. People are burnt out, so people are like leaving their jobs and a lot of it is like lower level staff. Although I've have talked to a few of you guys who've booked calls with me and some of you guys are just done. You guys are all white collared workers, but you guys are done with it. But most of the people partaking in the great resignation are the, the service workers, the people on the front lines. And those are the people that typically will employ as the property management staff at these properties and the maintenance handyman staff. So that's number one. Number two, finding high quality vendors represented the number one challenge. I guess that goes with number one. Number two, lost rent more severely impacting smaller companies. They, and there are many positions in this industry that don't require a college education they are looking to create programs that promote the industry to attract workers. There's a lot of churn in the industry as we need to see the labor pool open up. And one way to do that is to advertise industry and all the benefits it offers. Reminds me of the whole teacher shortage. What anybody wants to teach a bunch of kids and not get paid too much, sign up. It's like property manager, right? Anybody wants to interact with tenants who they only write two and one star reviews when they are upset, but when they're happy, they don't tell a single story. they say thank you. they assume and they're entitled for good treatment in their $800 apartment. It's a thankless profession. It requires lots of tact, lots of project management skills, lots of people skills and it's a very key critical position, in my opinion. If you guys haven't checked out the Family Office Ohana group, I think we're getting up to actually, I got to change the site 80 members or so. The initial fee to join is going up next year, so please reach out before the end of the year to partake in 2021 pricing because it ain't going to go down. If there's one thing that is true in life, it is rents typically don't go down and the family office Ohana initiation fee don't go down either. Most people who join, we save them or make them four or five times that initial fee in their first year. So get on the inside and unless if you're not tired of listening to the same old stuff of podcast land, just give you just the tip to just get you confused enough to call the guests and figure out what product and sales funnel you want to fall into. And lastly, help me out and check out my book, simplepassivecashflow.com book. Shoot me an email at lane at simplepassivecashflow.com if you would like to help me out for a few minutes, giving me a, a review on Amazon so that my parents can be happy with me. They don't know what I do these days. They're upset, or I think they're just confused. I'm not an engineer. But unless there's any other questions, thanks for joining us, folks. The legal disclaimer here, of course, do your own due diligence and think for your guys' selves.
0: The proceeding offers general personal finance information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor's situation is unique. Always seek the services of professional tax and legal advisors before relying on any information you take Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk.